You are listening to History Man 1781, where we walk in the footsteps of heroes. On today's podcast, we start our visit to Camden, South Carolina. Located in the Midlands of South Carolina, it is situated on the Great Wagon Road that connected Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Georgia. After the fall of Charleston, Camden was the epicenter of the Southern Campaign of the Revolution. Through its history, we hope to catch a glimpse of the national struggle for independence. At Camden, we discover and rediscover heroes and enemies of old in Horatio Gates, Thomas Sumter, Francis Marion, Nathaniel Green, Bannister Tarleton, and Lord Cornwallis. Join us as we rediscover why freedom reigns. Today's podcast features a look at the history of Camden through the voice of Rick Wise, the education and volunteer coordinator of the museum. Welcome, Rick. Thank you, Eric. Appreciate you having me on. Rick, you have a unique perspective of the battlefield here at Camden, South Carolina. Tell us a little bit about your background. Eric, I'm a uh, native South Carolinian from over in the PD area. Went to school at the University of South Carolina, went an undergraduate degree in history. I uh, got my commission in the Army while I was in graduate school, uh, getting a master's in education, and instead of teaching and coaching, I uh, chose to go active duty in the military at a, uh, a kind of exciting 23 years doing this, that, and the other in the Army, and uh, uh, when I retired, I ran the Troops to Teachers program here in South Carolina, and now I'm doing something that I want to do. I'm actually uh, working on a master's in military history. And the opportunity came to uh, come over here to historic Camden and do a few things uh, with history that I love. And so here I am. So your background in the military, uh, just for our listeners, uh, you have some background in artillery, is that correct? Uh, That's correct. Okay, tell us a little bit how that plays into your role here. Having for our listeners, having sat in on several of your talks, you're able to set up the battlefield in a way that uh, maybe the novice who hasn't been in the military or hasn't been in artillery, for instance, uh, can understand. And and you bring that to the table and uh, it just makes for a very vivid presentation for, for the audience. Tell us a little bit about how your background plays into what you do here. One of the things about being a fire supporter is that you have to be in tune with uh, what the maneuver guys are going doing. That's the armor and infantry folks. Uh, particularly uh, what I've done throughout my uh, younger life and in my military career is I've studied military history. And one of the things that I do is you look at the components of, uh, of how the military fights and that sort of thing. It changes from era to era. But the thing that I really appreciate is the fact that soldiers over time really have not changed. And really what I try to do is bring out that what took place here in the battlefields at Camden and other places are really, it's the history of people and what they did in unique circumstances. So when you say soldiers really haven't changed, uh, what are you talking about? Well, from a standpoint of leadership, uh, soldiers, for the most part, I forget what the uh, number is, it's somewhere between 75 and 80 pounds that soldiers have always carried throughout uh, military history, whether it be a Roman soldier, a soldier from uh, the Revolutionary War or in World War II. uh, Soldiers go through the same types of uh, physical and psychological uh, stress on uh, whatever the battlefield may be. Uh, The weapon systems change. 
the tactics change, but uh, physical combat generally does not when you get down to it. Even though we're now in an electronic age where uh, folks can get uh, hit from a, uh, a hellfire missile that's launched from a drone, still somewhere out there is a guy that's uh, wondering if that's actually going to happen. So that affects you psychologically and physically. So tell our listeners how Camden came to be and uh, what they will find when they come visit here. Well, Camden itself, if you look at it, is in a unique uh, uh, geographical location. If you go back prehistoric times, uh, where we are here in Camden would actually be out in the Atlantic Ocean. Uh, the ocean actually went all the way up into the Columbia area, so we would be some 40 miles out to sea here. And as the waters receded, uh, it left wide navigable rivers to our east, the PD, the Santee, the Edisto River basins. Uh, but here in Camden itself, you would have kind of the, uh, where you would have the headwaters of the Watery River. You have Catawba comes over in this area, but they really don't connect. And consequently, what would happen is uh, you would have to take your boat from one river to the other. What that then made was you had to have some form of an encampment, and then an encampment would become a village. And the next thing you know, you have folks that are uh, here in the general Camden area. Uh, we do mark the fall line of the state that separates the upper country from the, uh, from the low country with flatter elevations. And as you're here at the fall line, uh, another geographic feature that really uh, helped bring, bring people to Camden was the fact that you had what was at one time the uh, Great Warrior Trail, which was the Indian trails that led the Native Americans from uh, one village to another. Uh, later on, that road widened. Here it was the Waxhaw Road that goes up to Waxhaw up on the North Carolina border. But additionally, it became the Great Wagon Road. Now, you know, various stories about the Great Wagon Road. Uh, going to the south from Camden, it would take you all the way to Augusta, with one fort taking you to 96, which is, of course, from 96 miles from Fort Prince George in, uh, in Cherokee Indian Territory. And going to the north, you would go into North Carolina, across the Yadkin River, up the Shenandoah Valley in Virginia, into western Pennsylvania, and all the way to Philadelphia. As a matter of fact, some uh, visitors from Pennsylvania a few weeks ago here informed me that the road up there is called the Carolina Road. Wow, wow. So from, from Camden, what, uh, what is the modern-day road that, that, that uh, kind of shadows that great wagon road? Uh, from Camden, if you uh, go up 521 or down 521, right. uh, that will pretty well do it. But of course, you, uh, the roads merge together and change a little bit. Uh, if you take 601 out of Camden, that'll take you over towards the Congaree River over in the area of uh, Fort Mott. Uh, okay. I think the road designation may change numbers there a couple of times, but generally it's the road that would go. Uh, there will be two, uh, two ways you would go to Charleston. Uh, one would be you would go uh, down the roads that would be on the east side of the Watery River and then the roads that would go over the west side of the Watery River. Of course, you'd have to go through a couple of ferries or whatever to get to Charleston, for instance, Nelson's Ferry on the Santee River. But, uh, uh, and that's what made those roads uh, a place where we could uh, go in and keep the British supply line under pressure. I see. Guys like Francis Marion and Thomas Sumter could do that. Sure. So prior to the Revolutionary War, the Lord Proprietors kind of see or, or decided that they wanted South Carolina. Is that correct? Well, no, you had the first English settlers okay. came in in 1670. Okay. 
uh, they found that uh, the land was very fertile. Uh, they found that they could grow rice, indigo. They became very much cash crops that were, uh, that were being able to be exported to various places around the globe. Uh, that was very good. But by 1730, still you had about 90% of the population was within 30 miles of Charleston. So the Lord's proprietors and King George II wanted to change that. So there was a proposal for 11 towns that would go into the back country. Back country here in South Carolina was anywhere 50 miles or farther outside of Charleston. So of the various places that were, they talked about uh, having a settlement, this geographic location was one of them. However, it wasn't called Camden. It was called Fredericksburg. And so in 1732 was when uh, Fredericksburg kind of uh, the, the whole process began. Camden is, uh, became eventually the oldest. Uh, it, was a, it was the oldest continuous backcountry yeah, town? Yeah, it was the oldest continuous backcountry town uh, that began around 1732. I see. You had Irish Quakers come in around 1750. And as Camden itself began to be developed, the initial uh, group of folks here, uh, we think around 1750, there were 32 families. I see. And 17 taverns. <laughs> okay, but, uh, and, and people will look at, oh my goodness, there were 17 taverns? That's a pretty significant amount. Well, well it, was a trading, to, it was a trading spot. Uh, well, it was a trading spot and you had a lot of folks coming through here. So the 17 taverns, what you have to look at from that perspective, is that, uh, you know, uh, taverns were like holiday inns on steroids. I see. Uh, you, could, uh, you could have your horse taken care of, you could get a meal, you could get something to drink, you could meet the locals because they would come to the tavern to get the local news and the news of travelers coming through. And oh, by the way, when you shut down the bar back then, hey, that meant that you went to sleep there at the tavern. I see. Okay, yeah. so if you look at the size of a tavern, for instance, Macaw's Tavern we have here at Historic Camden, it's a, you know, about a three, four room house is really what it is. So from that perspective, what you're having is folks are spending the night in a three or four bedroom house. Therefore, you had to have several of them to be able to house the number of travelers that were coming through. I see. See, so uh, having gone into that house, describe that, that uh, house slash tavern that you have on site here at uh, Camp. Uh, Macaw's Tavern, as we have developed it, uh, is actually a historic home from inside Camden circa about 1820. Uh, Dr. McCaw and his family lived in the house and then later on uh, the, the house itself was donated to the historic Camden Foundation. Uh, as we uh, brought it together and tried to develop it into its current presentation, what we wanted to do was show it as a tavern. Uh, Dr. McCaw's uh, father actually owned and operated a tavern in Camden circa 1794. So if you see the sign out front, Macaw's Tavern, 1794 with a parrot on it. Okay, so what we wanted to do is be able to use it for, uh, for uh, events, be they uh, events like uh, parties, birthdays, uh, wedding anniversaries, all sorts of things we can host here. But moreover, what we try to do is give it a presentation of what a, uh, what a tavern would have looked like somewhere around the turn of the uh, 17 and 1800s. So the, the term bar came from the, the way that tavern was laid out, correct? Uh, that's true, because if you look at the bar at, that we have at Macaw's Tavern, actually it's called a cage bar. There was a cage on it, pretty much like the bars of a cell. 
the idea was if you're spending the night, you don't know who the people are that you're spending the night with, so for a nominal fee, the tavern owner would help secure your valuables behind the cage bar. So what they would do is lower the cage portion and then close the door and lock it. And of course the alcohol was kept behind there too. That way sure. people didn't uh, sleepwalk and get drunk at the same time. Uh, but anyways, so uh, by necessity, you wanted to have that cage bar concept. Well, uh, I'm not sure how many of the listeners out there have closed down a bar lately. They let you close it down, but they don't let you sleep there. Well, since when it got to the point where taverns where you no longer were allowed to sleep there, then there was no need for the cage portion of it. So the cage went away, leaving the bar itself. Very good. That's, uh, that's interesting. So uh, the Kershaw House, that is like the, the uh, anchor point of historic Camden, tell us a little bit about the Kershaw House. Well, the Kershaw House initially was built by Joseph Kershaw here, uh, and this is on Magazine Hill. And, uh, oh, by the way, uh, Fredericksburg that I talked about initially, uh, they changed the name to Pine Tree Hill. But when this house was built uh, circa 1777, uh, Joseph uh, Kershaw had helped change the name one more time from Fredericksburg to Pine Tree Hill to Camden. Uh, the location was named Camden after Charles Pratt, who was Lord Camden, who was very much a proponent for colonial rights in Parliament. So. In 1777, Joseph Kershaw, who was really a founding father for Camden, uh, this guy had it going on. He did a little bit of everything. He first came in uh, to America uh, somewhere around 1758. He was from Yorkshire, England. He worked for a mercantile company in Charleston. When Joseph Kershaw came into Pine Tree Hill, uh, he established a mercantile store. And the mercantile store was sort of like a 1700s Walmart. But then he looked around and he noticed that the people weren't growing wheat. So he taught them how to grow wheat. Well, if you got wheat, if you want to make a flour, then you have to have a mill. So he helped them develop a mill to be able to grind flour and cornmeal. Okay, the next thing is he looks around and you need to have bricks to, to build uh, chimneys and those sorts of things. And then you need to have a sawmill so that you can have lumber to build the town and he had a brewery, a distillery. So he had lots of things going on. His brother Eli goes over to Sheraw and opens up a store, though I am uh, understand that it wasn't as successful as the one over here. So Joseph Kershaw has all these things going on. Not only that, he is the man about town. He's the mayor, he's the sheriff, he's the colonel of militia. So if Joseph Kershaw is not involved with it, it's kind of you know not really happening, I guess. But when you get to 1777, he builds this house on the top of Magazine Hill. And it's a beautiful house, it's big. You can tell that he's wealthy, why? Because it's got all these glass windows and glass windows are taxable. So if you see a lot of glass, you know the guy's got the money to be able to afford it. Wow. So the house is being built in 1777. Uh, it is not complete in 1780 when the British get here. My understanding is even when the British were here, they never put banisters on the stairs inside the house. And when the British got here, one of the things we understand is they came to the town and a, a delegation probably met them uh, saying that they would not cause trouble. They were relegated to their homes and a column rode up Magazine Hill. And Sarah Kershaw and her eight children probably came out on the porch to meet them. 
the adjutant would have dismounted and with Lord Cornwallis and other folks there, uh, the adjutant would have stated in the name of King George III, we claim this property in the name of the king. Step aside. And at that point, Sarah Kershaw and Joseph Kershaw's home now belonged to the British. Were they able to stay in the house at all or were they uh, sent somewhere else? Sarah Kershaw and her children uh, stayed here in the house initially. Uh, they said that they were staying on an upper floor. Uh, we can uh, translate that several ways. If we consider that the second floor of the home was where the bedrooms and other things would have been, well, actually, that would be the third floor if you can include the basement being the first floor. On the third floor of the house would have been bedrooms and possibly a ballroom that was incomplete and some other things. Uh, however, uh, what happened is I think that possibly they were in the attic. Uh, I know at one point it says Sarah Kershaw complained and Lord Rawdon uh, mentioned that she might be able to uh, stay in the chicken coop. I do not know if that's accurate information or not. And another story is, is that they did have Sarah Kershaw and her children uh, went to one of the outbuildings and that they were stayed there for at least a short while. And the outbuilding that they used had actually been before then used to house prisoners of war that had smallpox. So uh, not, not, uh, not a pleasant situation. Eventually Sarah Kershaw and her children went to one of the uh, farms that was on the outskirts of town and uh, would have not done as well as they did had it not been for some of their servants that were able to get food to them every now and then. So for our listeners, uh, the historic Camden, Camden that we're talking about, uh, is just south of the present day. So. Right, uh, historic Camden, uh, you, you can't see it any longer. It's okay. because it's underground. Historic Camden, if you come in and visit our site, you'll see a uh, football stadium that's right nearby and the green grassy field that is between where you see the site of Historic Camden and that stadium is where the town of Camden was, the colonial town. As a matter of fact, uh, you will see part of the palisade that's a uh, reproduction of where the palisade was and that was a fortification that the British put around the town of Camden to help, uh, help fortify it. Uh, from that corner, that would be the southeast corner of the town. If you go to the uh, football stadium to about the 50 yard line and then go to the west across the road about 300 yards and then uh, reconnect it on around, you would have had the historical site of the colonial town of Camden. And it runs on either side of 521 Coming off, of, if you, to put it in perspective, I-20 runs just south of Camden, correct? And then that is you get correct. Off of 521 to go into the present-day Camden. You'll just be before on. you get to the present-day Camden, you will see the football field, and some of the Palisades are actually, uh, you can see those from the road as well. That is correct. Wow. Uh, and then on the outside of these Palisades, uh, tell us a little bit about... Uh, the redoubts that are, are around that would be, that would have been on the outside of the Palisades? Uh, there were a total of six redoubts, uh, seven if you include the jail that was fortified. Okay. And uh, there were earthen redoubts, and a redoubt is an earthen fortification. Generally, you would have a, uh, a parapet that would be set up. You would have uh, sharpened logs that would go around the bottom of it and to keep someone from being able to go up, that's because there was a moat around it or a ditch. 
So if you wanted to attack it, you had to go down the ditch. You got sharpened uh, 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 logs that were sticking out there. They were called phrases. And you, you would have to chop those out. And they were in about three feet. And also they had a uh, cross member that held them all together so you couldn't pull them out individually. And I know you're asking, Eric, how in the world do you know that thing? Because we are in the process of completing a readout that we have reconstructed. Uh, we have uh, Tom O'Black uh, was in, in charge of that operation for us, and Tom has done a great job of researching the uh, 1700s engineering manuals that the British used so that we could reconstruct this uh, readout pretty much to the 18th century standard. So the way that readout is made is the same way that a readout would be made at 96 or down in, in uh, Charleston? Uh, technically it? speaking, that is correct because we're using the same pattern and design that was used by British engineers. And they had taken those designs from the French and had translated them into English. Okay, now I will tell you these are not exactly to design. We cheated, we used screws instead of nails and everything. <laughs> For, for listeners, Camden has done a great, great job of memorializing their history. You can go just about anywhere in Camden and find some sort of history that dates back even, even before the colonial days uh, with King Hagler and the Catawba Indians and, 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 and back before that. But if you go around uh, uh, the oldest parts of Camden, you will find that the city of Camden and historic Camden have put up memorials or, or there's placards, uh, which is kind of a segue for us in that uh, there were two battles here uh, within the span of a year. Is that correct? Uh, that's correct. So uh, the, the British came in and occupied Camden in uh, 1st of June, 1780. Okay. Uh, it was part of their expansion into the back country here. It was part of their southern campaign with the intent to take Savannah as a base of operations, uh, to take Charleston, and then to be able to uh, successively take uh, Georgia, South Carolina, North Carolina, and Virginia to separate them from the northern states. Uh, by being able to isolate the northern states, it was then thought that the British would be able to entice them to come back to the crown. So the first efforts were very successful. Uh, went in and took uh, uh, Savannah in 1778, and then 1779 uh, fought off an attack in an attempt to take, uh, retake Savannah. Uh, and General Clinton then made the determination to put 8,700 troops on ships come down to Savannah. After going to Savannah, using it as a base of operations, uh, go back to the north. They go into the North Edisto River that is just south of Charleston. They go overland and then are able to cross across the Ashley River onto the peninsula. Charleston is a peninsula city with the uh, Ashley River to the south and the uh, Cooper River to the north. So from there, they're able to do a siege operation and with, their, with the assistance of their fleet, they're able to capture General Benjamin Lincoln's army in Charleston, capture approximately 5,000 men and all their weapons and artillery. And then they followed that up. There was uh, a, a contingent of troops that were coming in to relieve uh, some of the Continentals in Charleston uh, under Buford, correct? Uh, that's correct. As part of the British operations at that point, it was to expand into the back country of South Carolina to, uh, to expand their control and their command and control of not only the uh, local population, but the government as well. 
So they went to Augusta, 96, Camden, Sherraw, and Georgetown. As a part of their moving out into that part of the country, uh, they received intelligence that, uh, that Colonel Buford, who had a couple of, uh, a couple of battalions of uh, Continental troops that had been on the march to go and help uh, the folks in Charleston, uh, that they had heard that Charleston had fallen and were retreating back to North Carolina. Uh, Cornwallis went after him, figured out that he would not be able to catch him in time, so he turned loose a very energetic and erstwhile Bannister Tarleton with his British Legion and some supporting troops to get after the Continental folks. Let me stop you right there. What was the road that they used to, to leave Charleston and go back to North Carolina? It was the Great Wagon Road. The I-21 that comes right through Camden. That is correct. And then uh, they took the Waxhaws Road that would have gone all the uh, a couple of roads going up that way, part of that branch would have been what is now Flat Rock Road that they would have taken to go over through Rugeley's Mill and up towards Waxhaws, about 40 miles away. Wow. Okay, so Tarleton and his troops, are, they, they, did they, didn't they lose some horses or something around and were able to get more horses? Or what horses did they use to give pursuit to Buford, do you know? Uh, they captured horses as they went along. Uh, a, a lot of the thoroughbred type horses that were preferred by cavalry, uh, they pretty well commandeered along the way. I see. Uh, for instance, as they were going along there, they stopped at uh, a, a place uh, that was owned by a guy named Thomas Sumter. Is that right? That's uh, over at Stateburg, South Carolina, about 30 miles or so from uh, from uh, historic Camden. As a matter of fact, if you go down 521, but then you have to take, I believe it's uh, 561, uh, to go over in that general direction to go through Stateburg. Uh, the thing is, is a lot of people look at names like Thomas Sumter and they think that they were very much involved throughout the American Revolution. Thomas Sumter, in fact, had resigned his commission in 1778. Not much was happening in South Carolina, so he went back to, to farming and doing the things he was doing. Uh, he and his wife, Mary, had another uh, summer house here at Stateburg. At the time, it was called the High Hills of Santee. I see. So as Bannister Tarleton was coming through this way in pursuit of Buford, he sent Captain Campbell and an detachment over to Sumter's house. They were looking for him because he was a former Continental officer. Well. One of the neighbors knew they were looking for Sumter, runs into Sumter's son, who goes home and says, Dad, you got British cavalry looking for you. What Sumter does is he loads up uh, his Continental uniform and some supplies and gets a servant, and they get out of Dodge. Right. Say, is it, so as they're leaving, I don't know if they left fully at that point or if they hid in the swamp to see what would happen. British cavalry go to his house. They're questioning uh, Mary Sumter. She can't tell them where he is. Therefore, and, uh, and Mary, I'm told, is a very sweet lady. Uh, she has a, a withered left arm, uh, doesn't walk very well. Well, the British lift her up in her rattan chair, take her outside, sit her under a tree, and she and her 11-year-old son get to watch their house burn. They then, they then knock the uh, lock off of the, uh, off the smokehouse because one of the servants refused to give up the key and stole all the food. But we are told that one British soldier maybe put a ham under her chair and said, ma'am, so you won't be hungry. 
Very good. Okay, but interesting side stories there. Uh, a, a side story, but getting back to Bannister Tarleton, he was yes up the Waxhaws Road after uh, Buford captures up to catches up to Buford, uh, offers them the, the uh, opportunity to surrender. Buford refuses, and after that, uh, they launch an attack. Buford makes a tactical error. Uh, he tells his men not to shoot until the cavalry is very near to them. Of course, the closer they are, you don't have time to reload. The cavalry was in amongst his infantry. And at that point, uh, the story goes, the Continentals tried to surrender, dropped their weapons, raised their hands, sent an ensign forward with a uh, white flag. Supposedly, the ensign was cut down by a saber, even though he had a white flag and the killing at that point began. Uh, there were supposedly 113 uh, of the Continentals were killed, 150 wounded. Now this is compared to, uh, yes, the British took some casualties, particularly from the one volley that the Americans were able to put out there, uh, but still the casualty rates, I'm not remembering off the top of my head, but was extremely low, something like four killed and 18 wounded for the British versus the uh, casualties, I just said 113 killed, 150 wounded. And those wounds are primarily bayonet and saber wounds. And that doesn't include those who died of those wounds. That is correct. Afterwards, a week, up to a week, two weeks later. Uh, that is true. As a matter of fact, uh, there's one story, one of the uh, officers who was bayoneted 23 times that uh, he was laying there prostrate and uh, uh, prostrate. <laughs> Let's try that again. He was lying there prostrate, and you would have soldiers come up and say, "Do you surrender?" And he would not surrender, so they would bayonet him again. And these were soldiers uh, on the Continental Line under Buford who were from Virginia. That's correct. And they other places up. Up above North Carolina, I mean, they had come down a long way. But they had come a long way. And they were dying on ground they didn't know anything about. That is true. And in fact, if you, you go up there now, you will find a mass grave. That is correct. That they have, they have identified where these patriots were, were uh, buried. In fact, if you go up and down, all around through here with the different battlefields, you have said, and for our listeners, it is hollow ground. I mean, it, it is... It is something that uh, that we have kind of pushed back in the back of our memories, but it's something y'all have done uh, around here to try to bring this back up to the forefront to, to remind us that these are patriots who fought for our freedoms uh, from, from long ago, and, and many of them are left unknown in these graves. Well, that is true. Uh, if we look at the uh, Maryland and Delaware Continentals, the battlefield at Camden here, uh, yeah, very much folks that uh, came here to support us in the, in the war that was going on in South Carolina. You know, a few, few people seem to realize that South Carolina had more battles and engagements in the American Revolution than any other colony. At that time, any other state as well, because we were states at the time. Okay, so as you look at that, uh, you know, it's important for us to remember the role that South Carolina played. And another thing I want to point out at the Battle of the, uh, of the Waxhaws there, as we look at uh, the uh, British Legion, Tarleton's men, uh, the movie The Patriot, if you see Colonel Tavington in the movie The Patriot, he's the personification of Bannister Tarleton. Well, 
a lot of folks also do not realize how much of a civil war the American Revolution was. You had Whigs or Patriots against Tories or Loyalists. And if you look at what happened at the Waxhaws, we immediately want to say, you know, cannot believe the British did those dastardly things. Well, what you don't realize, those British were Tarleton's Legion who were recruited from Pennsylvania, New Jersey, and New York. That's right. They were Americans against Americans.